Welcome. I'm so glad to uh, have you guys here with us this morning. Um, isn't it a beautiful morning? I just loved it. I woke up and the birds were chirping and the sun was just starting to come up. And it's just, it's a beautiful day for many reasons. But I, I like it when that cherry is on top, when it's a, just a sunny, beautiful day. Well, welcome. You know, I did some um, online grocery shopping recently. And um, all of the items that uh, were in my cart were available. And so I got so excited. And, and I want to tell you why, why that was a big deal and why I got so excited over groceries being available in my cart. Well, um, shopping, grocery shopping in particular in 2020 was just a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I'm sure that many of you experienced it. Um, I went in the year of 2020 almost exclusively to online grocery shopping. I hardly ever went into the actual store. And so um, I was, you know, grocery shopping at HEB online. And, you know, I'm putting all of these items in my cart and I'm getting excited because I'm like, ooh, they have juice, they have eggs, they have peanut butter. You know, and so you get all excited, you get a false sense of security because you think all of these items are going to be available. And then what would happen is that um, about an hour before it was time for you to pick up your groceries, you would start getting these text messages. And it would say, bing, peanut butter has been removed from your cart. It is currently unavailable. And you're like, oh, man, I really wanted that peanut butter. And then maybe 10 minutes later, ding, and you're like, oh, no. And it's like, eggs were removed from your cart. They are currently unavailable. And it went on and on and on. And I'm not kidding you. There were times that I would start out with about 35 items in my cart. And by the time it was said and done, I was down to 12. And it was just always just like, no, why aren't these things available? And so, um, you know, I, I, I came to expect that things were just going to be unavailable. And so I thought I wanted to do something a little bit fun today. I usually start out um, the message with a joke. And I thought, you know, Let's, let's do something a little bit different today. We're actually going to do a countdown. We are going to do a countdown of the top seven least available items in 2020. Least available items, the top seven. Now, um, I consulted many lists, and these are the things that made all of those lists. So I'm pretty sure they are, don't, and don't start revealing them yet, because I want people to put on their thinking caps and guess a little bit. Okay, so you already have number seven. Um, but... These are the things that, um, oh, okay, I can see it. Perfect. Uh, you guys are doing your job right. I'm going to stop telling you what to do. <laughs> That's usually when I get in trouble. <laughs> Put on my bossy pants. Okay, so, um, but I'm, uh, we're going to go, we're going to start with number seven. It, top ten would have been, you know, more fun, but we're, we're going to do the top seven things that were least available in 2020. Okay, now, we're a little bit of an intimate group today, so if you yell out the wrong thing, people will know you said it. <laughs> no pressure. No, we're going to have some fun here. So number seven. Anybody want to take a gander what the number seven least available item in 2020 was? And we're going to go through these pretty quickly. So, so, Oh, my goodness. Okay, guys, number seven is gardening supplies. Gardening supplies were the seventh least available item. And, you know, I started thinking about this. I'm like, gardening supplies, why? And I, I've come to two conclusions. Either A, people were just bored out of their noggins and took up gardening. You know, you're not going anywhere. You're close to home. Why not? Or number two, maybe people were in their backyard digging 
in hopes of finding gold or maybe striking oil. You know? So I don't know. It could have been one of those two things, but gardening supplies made the list at number seven. How about number six? Quickly, anyone take a guess? The number six least available item in 2020. Okay, let's show it. It is ketchup. I have no idea why. I don't get it. <laughs> so we're going to move on. I have no comment. I don't know why <laughs> ketchup was the number six least available item. Uh, how about number five? This one actually surprised me. It was unexpected. Number five, anyone? Okay, freezers, those upright freezers. And the only thing I can think of is that those of you, and I am not included in this group, those of you who went to um, Costco and hoarded all the meat, and then you took it home and put it in your brand new freezer, <laughs> maybe that's the reason, but freezers were the number five Least available item in 2020. Okay, number four. Now, these should start getting a little bit more. Number four? Okay, close. Number four is face masks. Face masks were the number four least available item. Number three, someone already said it. Let's go ahead and show it. Disinfecting wipes. I was spit shining a whole bunch of stuff last year. <laughs> Just spit shining it. <laughs> Okay, number two, anyone want to take a, a guess? Number two, the, the second least available item in 2020. Okay, let's show it. It Hand sanitizer. I mean, like, I was paying, like, buku bucks for, like, the bottle kept getting smaller and smaller. Okay, and then number one, the least available item in 2020. Now, yes, let's just sing this chorus. We all know it. Toilet paper. Now, if you got it wrong, we have ushers on either side. They're going to escort you out. <laughs> no one should have gotten this wrong. Toilet paper. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who still has toilet paper stockpiled in their uh, garage or basement. But yeah, toilet paper. There were so many things that were unavailable. Availability is pretty important. Availability is important. And uh, Webster's defines the word available as this, being present or ready for immediate use, accessible, obtainable. It also means uh, being willing to do something or to assume a responsibility. Availability, very important. I'm going to uh, read some names to you. Some of them will be uh, household names. You're very familiar with them. Um, others, you may have heard the name before, but don't really know um, anything attached to that name. I'm going to read their names, and I'm going to um, talk about some of the things that they've done. First name, Corey Ten Boom. She's a Dutch woman who worked in her father's uh, watchmaker shop. She and her family helped to hide Jews in their home during the Holocaust. It is estimated that she helped save the lives of approximately 800 Jews. She went on to write a book called The Hiding Place, which recounts not only her rescue efforts, but her own imprisonment in a concentration camp. Next person, Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot um, was the widow of missionary Jim Elliot. Uh, they both served in Ecuador as uh, missionaries to native, and, and they would go into just um, uncharted territory. And... Um, Elizabeth's husband, Elliot, was actually uh, killed. He was speared to death by the natives. 
And the amazing thing is that um, Elizabeth continued on in the work as a missionary. She stayed on a few years longer and ministered to the people that actually um, killed her husband. And she was able to um, participate in helping the Bible be translated in that native language. Clara Barton. Um, she was a nurse who risked her life to bring supplies and aid to soldiers during the Civil War. And she later went on to um, be the founder of the American Red Cross. David Wilkerson. He was a young preacher from Pennsylvania who saw an article in Life magazine one night. And the article was about a gang of teenage boys who had committed a murder. And David after reading that article, just felt a stirring in his heart that he could not deny was from the Lord. So he went to New York City in search of these young men. He eventually founded a Teen Challenge Ministries, which I'm going to reference that ministry um, later on in the morning. It's a national nonprofit that works uh, to bring restoration to youth and um, who have drug addictions or gang activity. And then the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Uh, we've, most of us in this room have probably heard of him. Uh, he wrote uh, much of the New Testament. He was imprisoned, beaten. He remained faithful to bring the gospel not just to the Jews, but he had a specific ministry and calling to the Gentiles, which obviously was not, or maybe it's not obvious, it was not um, popular <laughs> at the time for the Gentiles to receive the message. But Paul remained faithful to his calling, and he did it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear um, a list of names like that and when I hear a list of the things that they spent their life doing, um, sometimes I get a little bit intimidated or I tend to categorize them and put them in a special category, maybe even up on a pedestal and say, man, look at what they did with their life. I, I, I could never do that. I could never do that. I helped save over 800 people start a national uh, ministry with young people with drug addiction and gang activity. I can never do any of that. But here's the thing that I want to point out this morning. Here's the thing. While what they did was obviously important, it's very important what they did, but there's something that's of even greater importance. They all had something in common. Before their names ever became household names, before they ever did noteworthy or remarkable things, they all had this in common. They were available. They made themselves available. They said yes. They saw the need, and they made themselves available to meet that need. I'm sure that Corey Ten Boom, when she said yes to taking in that first person, had no idea that she would go on to save over 800 lives. And I'm pretty sure that David Wilkerson, when he left his home in Pennsylvania and went to New York City in search of those seven youth, he had no idea that he would eventually go on to birth a national ministry that still remains today. Whether God uses us to reach one person or one million people is not the point. The point is that we make ourselves available to him for whatever it is that he wants to do through us. Because when we reach people in the name of Jesus, there is no small thing. There is no unimportant thing, right? Last week, uh, our guest speaker, Antonio Sims, talked about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And one of his points was that when we follow him, we follow him all 
the way. No half-stepping. We follow him all the way. We are obedient to whatever it is that he asks us to do. And so this morning, we're going to continue on in that vein. And uh, the title of this message is Available To, as in my heart is available to him and available for, as in my life is available for him to use. So number one, available to. We're going to have an available heart. We're going to make our hearts available to him. And now I want to take a moment so that we're all on the same page when we're using the word heart. Um, You know, I think sometimes um, I'm guilty when I share of making the assumption that everybody in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. And so I don't want to make that assumption. I want us all to be on the same page here as we move forward in talking about having an available heart. And so Strong's Concordance, which is a book that has Greek words, it has Hebrew words, because the Bible, its original language, is not English. (laughs) Um, It's Hebrew, Greek, and then some Aramaic. And so um, often when we want to know what is the essence of the word or sometimes the literal meaning of the word, it's good to look up the Greek word. And then uh, what happens is that when the Bible is translated into English, sometimes there's no exact word for that word. And so you, you use the word that's closest to that word. And so when the Bible talks about the heart, and especially in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about this. The Christ Book Commentary says, in Hebrew psychology, the heart is literally the human center, the home of personal feeling, our will, and our thinking. So when we're talking about giving our hearts to the Lord, making our hearts available, we're talking about making everything that is within us, our gut, how we feel, how we think, all of that available to him. It's not talking about a physical heart, and I don't think anybody in the room perhaps thought that the physical heart is what we're talking about, but we're talking about just the center of our being, our feelings, our emotions, how we think. We're making that available to God. Would you look with me? Psalm 8611 is a prayer of David, and I'm going to read this scripture um, from the New International Version. Psalm 8611 says this, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. King David prayed for an undivided heart. Some translations say, unite my heart. Other translations say, give me a pure heart. A heart that is consistent through and through. No contradictions, nothing pulling it this way, and then this way, and then this way. Uh, Listen to the illustration that the expositor's Bible commentary gives us. It says, too often... I feel two natures contending, two principles struggling for sovereignty. Our minds are apt to be divided between a variety of objects, like trickling streams which waste their forces in a hundred different directions. Our great desire should be to have all of our life floods poured into one channel and to have that channel directed toward the Lord alone. So often we have our desires, they're pulling us this way, this way, this way, our feelings this way, this way. And I love this illustration. It says all of our life's floods, all of our desires, our conscious thoughts are pulled in one direction and channeled toward the Lord alone. Have we made our entire heart available to God or are we holding something back? You know, when I think of um, a divided heart, I picture a room 
Many of you may have been to a conference where it's in a big room, but in order to have uh, separate meetings, they use room dividers. So it's one big room, but the room is divided. And I think, you know, having a divided heart, sometimes we compartmentalize. And um, we say, well, Lord, you can um, have this section, but the anger that's over here, I'm going to hold on to that a little bit longer. Not really ready to let that go yet. Oh, and then you can have that section over there. Um, but the fear, not ready to give that up yet, so I'm going to hold on to that. Now, how often do we section out the parts of our heart that we're going to give to the Lord, and then we remain in control over the other parts? Uh, how often have we allowed um, hardness, cynicism, unforgiveness, all of those things to remain, and those are the parts we hold on to? Or we want to polish, you know, we, we, we have God waiting outside the door while we clean things up and we're running around frantically trying to clean it up and, and make it look good before we let him in. Listen, God is not intimidated by the condition of our hearts. He, he's just not. The fear, the hardness, the anger, the insecurity, he can take, he wants all of those things. He welcomes them. Because he can take the hard, stony places, and he can give us scriptures as a heart of flesh that's pliable, that's movable, that's mendable. He can take the fear and replace it with peace. He can take the anger, replace it with joy. We have to give him all of who we are, the brokenness, the wholeness, the good, the bad, the ugly. He wants it all. And he'll take a complacent heart, and he'll set it on fire with passion for him and for what he wants us to do. We have to give him access to all of those rooms. You know, I, um, I'm a big fan of HGTV. I love to like sit down and like say, you know, I'm gonna try this. And I'll write stuff down I'm like, ooh, okay, and you mix that paint with that paint. And I never do any of it. I don't do any of it, <laughs> but I like to dream. And so on HGTV, there um, was this show and it was called Take Over My Makeover. And I don't know if it's still on. Um, they may still have a show like it and just, you know, renamed it, rebranded it. But when I used to watch it, it was called Take Over My Makeover. And it was so funny. I loved watching it because what happened was there was a couple, usually it was a couple, sometimes it was an individual, and they're like, I'm going to tackle my house. It's a mess, but I think I can do it. I think I can do this. And so they start working in different rooms of the house, and they start uncovering more things that they realize, you know, I, I really can't do this. I need a professional. So they call in a professional, and usually it goes something like this. The professional comes in, and they're walking through the rooms of the house, and they're like, and usually if it's a husband and wife, the wife is going, it was him. It was him. You know, she's pointing to the husband the whole time. It, he did that, you know. And the professional is like, really? You... What has happened here? And he's going through each room of the house and making an assessment. And the, you know, the, the homeowners are like, well, we thought we could tackle that. And we got into it and realized, you know, we, we were in over our heads. We, we actually made it worse. You know, it really, it actually, that hole wasn't that big when we started. It's actually worse than when we started. <laughs> and so what would happen is they would um, surrender their keys. They would give their keys over to the professional who knew what he was doing. And the professional would kick him out of their house. And he would say, you know, go live with grandma, go live with somebody, friends, aunts, uncles. I, I just need full control of your house. Give me six weeks. I'm going to get it back in order. And so the homeowner had to give total control over to this person. And this person would go in 
and make things right. I think, I think you uh, kind of know where I'm going with this analogy. <laughs> and so there are often times where we think, you know, I have this under control. I have this anger under control. I, I got it. And then uh, we realize that, you know, about um, you know, a couple of years into holding on to this anger, it's, it's actually worse. Actually, wasn't that bad when I started. I don't really know how I got here. Or that fear or that insecurity. And we think, you know, I got this. I got it. I can take care of it. And then we realize, you know, I'm, I'm in over my head. I need some help. And so what we have to do then is we have to surrender. We have to surrender all of it. You know, what I would notice on this show was they didn't just tell the professional, okay, so we're going to keep tackling the downstairs and eh, it might go okay. It might actually get worse, but we're going to, you know, remain in control over the, the downstairs. You just take care of the upstairs. See, it doesn't work that way when you're remodeling. You, you kind of, you know, walls join to other walls and joists. I learned that word joists. I don't know what it is, but I've heard it several times. Joists, you know, connect and hold things up. <laughs> and so um, it doesn't work to, to just give the person, like, control over upstairs. And I'm going to, you know, keep working on the downstairs. You do your thing upstairs. No, complete control. They handed the keys over and left and gave complete control for that person who knew what they were doing to do what they needed to do. And I think when we surrender our hearts to God and we say, God, here's my heart, I'm making it available to you, we're doing that. It's a complete surrender. We're completely giving him the keys and we're saying every part, every part is yours. No room, no section, no part is off limits. It's all yours, Lord. Amen. We have to make our hearts available to him, every part. And he knows exactly what he's doing. You know, I love that God is able and willing. You know, some, sometimes people are willing to help us, but they just, they're not able. They want to, but they're not able. I love that God is both willing and able to do exactly what he needs to do. Amen. So once we make our hearts available to God, he will turn our focus and our desires to the things that are for his glory and that are for our good. An available heart. Number two, an available life. Have we made our lives available for God to use for his glory? Would you turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29? And I'm going to be reading this time from the message Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. It says this, we preach Christ, and we is talking about, Paul is speaking, he's talking about himself and his companions. He says, we preach Christ, warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. And I love that. You know, it reminded me of, um, again, our, our guest speaker, Antonio Sims. He said, listen, it's time to get back to the basics. Sometimes as Christians, we, we actually complicate things. We make them way more complicated than they need to be. And Paul said, listen, to be mature is to be basic. We're going to stick to Christ. Nothing more, the scripture says, nothing less. Uh, that's what I'm working so hard at day after day, year after year doing my best with the energy God so generously gives me. Now, the amplified um, version of this scripture says, to this end I labor. I like that language. My time, my energy, my focus, 
is for what end? What is it used for? When I wake up in the morning, what is the end goal? Each day, what am I striving for? What am I laboring for? Paul said, uh, day after day, year after year, to preach Christ, nothing more, nothing less. That is what I labor for. I want to labor that my life might bring glory to God and that others might come to know him. And I don't mean just on a Sunday morning. I don't want to minimize what happens here in this building on a Sunday morning. It's a beautiful thing. I love seeing people operate in their gifts. But we're not talking about just on Sunday mornings. We're talking about with our lives and every part of our lives and how I raise my children. Am I seeking to bring glory to him? How I do my work, how I interact with my neighbors and my peers. My desire, our desire, has to be to bring honor to his name and to bring others closer to a knowledge of who he is. Um, I referenced um, David Wilkerson and Teen Challenge Ministries early on, and um, this ministry is uh, so near and dear to my heart. Um, I grew up, uh, I'm from upstate New York, uh, born and raised there, and um, we actually had a Teen Challenge uh, facility about four or five blocks from our church. So often, uh, the men who were going through the program um, would come to our church and share their testimony. And so um, when I was eight years old, I um, was in youth group, and eight-year-olds were not allowed really to go to youth group. I was too young to be there, but thank God um, the youth leader had mercy on me because I have five older sisters, and they were all old enough to go, and so I was the, you know, lone man out, and I would, I would do this. I'm not, I'm not above this. I, so I would sit on the stoop right outside the church and just be like, and everybody's in there, and I can hear them. They're having fun. They're playing volleyball. They're eating pizza, and I'm just, you know. And so finally one day she goes, okay, now, Lucindra, if you can be quiet and behave, you can come inside with your sisters. Okay, I will. So one particular Wednesday night, um, I was at youth group, eight years old, and we had a guest speaker from Teen Challenge. And this young man, he just poured out his heart. I just remember he was so vulnerable, so transparent, and he talked about the peace of God. And I just remembered it was just so appealing to me because even at the young age of eight, there had been so much chaos and turmoil in my life, and I just had never seen anybody that peaceful. Like, there was just a grace and a peace just on him as he spoke. And I honestly don't remember much of what he said, but I just remember his countenance, and it was just so appealing. And I thought, whatever he has, I want. And so I submitted my life to Christ that night. And so in that act, I made my heart available to God. And it's been a journey of learning to surrender more and more of my heart to him and be completely and totally surrendered to him. But that night, I made my heart available to the Lord. And so I, um, as I grew up, I said, you know, Lord, I just am so grateful for that ministry and that I came to know you through the testimony of, of one of the men that was in that ministry. And I just said, you know, Lord, I would love to one day um, have the opportunity to work in some way with Teen Challenge. And so God is so good. He often, <laughs> when he puts that desire in our heart, he honors that. And he, he gave me the opportunity. Uh, my senior year at Bible College, I had the opportunity to do a summer internship in Philadelphia at Teen Challenge, one of their chapters there. And so um, 
Now, when it first started out, it was only for men. Now they have chapters for men and for women. So I was working um, in Philadelphia at the Teen Challenge for women. And we would, during the day, we would have Bible study, we would have prayer, um, they would do their chores. We, just, we were kind of shadowing them wherever, whatever they did, we did. And then in the evening, we did street evangelism. Now that's not as popular today, um, but then it was pretty popular. And so busy street of Philadelphia, we'd go out there and we'd just start sharing Christ with people. And I mean, we got, I got French fries thrown at me and pop poured on me, but hey, we were out there and we wanted to share the love of Jesus. And um, that's just, that was their uh, pattern. That was their practice. Every evening they would go out and do that and they would share, different ones would share their testimony from Teen Challenge. So one night we just had such a positive response. Like people would actually stop, they would listen. We had several, you know, times where, you know, people would hear, you know, someone's walking by, they would hear us talking, they'd stop and come over and see what was going on. And we just, I remember we came home that night and we were just so happy and we were like, oh my goodness, you know, the Lord just really spoke to so many hearts. And so we were kind of giddy. And so we were supposed to be in bed asleep. The lights were out, we were in bed, and we were supposed to be asleep. So it kind of reminded me of a camp scene, you know, where teenagers were like, they're supposed to be asleep, but it's like 2 a.m. and they're still giggling under their covers. And so we were just so giddy. And so I remember that night, we were all just kind of talking and whispering to each other. And one woman who I hadn't heard her testimony yet, she started sharing her testimony. And she was saying how at a young age, she started taking drugs and um, just had been in unhealthy relationships and didn't really have any positive role models. And then she said this, she said, "Um, you know, in my early 20s, someone um, finally told me about Jesus. And they told me that he could set me free and that I could have peace and joy And she goes, I couldn't believe it. Like, I made it all the way to my 20s, and no one bothered to tell me about Jesus. Man, that just did something to me, to hear her say, no one bothered to tell me about Jesus. And that night, it was a a catalytic event for me. I had already made my heart available to God, but that night, I made my life (laughs) available to him. And I remember saying, God, I'm going to bother. I'm going to bother to tell other people about you. I'm not just going to assume that they don't want to know. I'm going to bother to tell people about Jesus. And so that night, even though I was in Bible college, I was studying to go into ministry, that incident made me realize something. I had grown complacent, honestly. Um, There was no sense of urgency for sharing the gospel with other people. Um, I was in Bible college, and while I did have a job out in the community, um, most of my time was spent with believers. And so I had kind of lost that urgency to tell people about Jesus. That drive to share Christ with people had taken a back seat. And so I want to ask you this morning, as I often ask myself, am I being faithful in sharing Jesus with others? Is that what I strive for? every day, in every way, in how I live my life and how I raise my kids? Is he getting glory from my life and am I bringing others to him? Where is that passion that once drove me? Is it still there? And if it's not God, would you reignite that passion? The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to a young man named Timothy. Timothy partnered with the Apostle Paul in ministry. He accompanied him on many of his missionary journeys. Um, But Paul regarded Timothy as much more than a co-laborer. He actually regarded him as a son. 
And so Paul writes these letters to Timothy to encourage him and to instruct him. And listen to what Paul has to say to this young man who he considers his son. Would you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 with me? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And this time I'm reading from the New King James Version. I've read from a couple of different versions this morning. 2 Timothy 1, 5 to 7 says this. This is the Apostle Paul talking to this young man who he considers his son, Timothy. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is also in you. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gifts of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Stir up the gift that is in you. That's the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to uh, young Timothy. And the Greek word here translated, it denotes a kindling of a fire, um, a stirring up of those dying embers so that it flames up again. So Paul is instructing Timothy to stir up those gifts so that they don't go cold from being um, unused. He's saying, stir up those gifts that are in you. You know, we are responsible for discovering and strengthening our gifts. It's our responsibility to be aware of the gifts that God has trusted us with and the passions that he has given us. And then it's our responsibility to operate in those gifts and passions. And it's not just a responsibility, people. It's an honor. It's an honor to serve God with the gifts that he has given us. If you don't know what those gifts are, if you never stop to ask God, what did you specifically create me for? Would you be very intentional to set some time aside and have that conversation with him? And these passages are not going to appear on the screen, but for those of you who are taking notes and you want to know this, there are several passages in the Bible that talk about spiritual gifts. And if you've never read these passages, if you've never taken the time to really ask God, you know, what is my spiritual gift? And I'm not talking about a skill or even a talent where I'm good at playing basketball or I'm really good at playing an instrument. I'm talking about a spiritual gift. Would you read over these passages? Uh, Romans chapter 12 And really read the whole chapter because the whole chapter is good. But specifically verses 3 through 8 talk about spiritual gifts that God gives to us. Romans 12 verses 3 to 8. Also a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That whole chapter really from beginning to end talks about the spiritual gifts that God gives us. Hospitality, serving, faith, generosity. And then uh, one final passage in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, talk about spiritual gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers. So take a moment. If you've never done it, if you have, you know what your spiritual gift is, take a moment to ask yourself, am I using it for God's glory? Am I using, am I actively using that gift? Am I seeking out opportunities? Am I paying attention to the opportunities that he gives me? To what end do we labor? When living an available life, we may not always know exactly what we have made ourselves available to. When we say that yes, we may not always know what that's going to lead to. So we may not always know the what, but we do know who we've made ourselves available to. 
We know that he has proven himself to be trustworthy and faithful. He's full of power and wisdom. He's loving. He's kind. He's promised to never leave us, never forsake us. So whatever we're saying yes to, we know we're not going to do it alone. Amen? An available life starts with an available heart. When we surrender all that we are to the one who knows us best, who loves us best, we are putting ourselves in a position where he can use our lives to make a difference in this world. How many of you want to make a difference? I, I absolutely do. I do not want to be a hamster on a wheel just going around and around and around and around, doing what I know to do, doing the same thing, running in the same circles, talking to the same people. My goodness, I want to be spent for him. I want to be used for his glory. There's a reason, as Pastor Jay said, that we are still here on this earth. There's work to do, and we can make a difference when we make our hearts and our lives available to him. Will you pray with me, please?